making the simple note of sitting, sitting. Opening to the feeling of the posture. And open to whatever sounds may appear. Notice how effortlessly the sounds are known. Settled in the awareness of your body, open to sounds, Connecting with the feeling of each breath as it begins, as it continues. Sensations of each breath appear in the same spontaneous way as sounds appear. Settled in the awareness of the body, of your sitting posture, open to sounds, connecting with the breath. Open to any strong or predominant bodily sensation, pleasant or unpleasant. Simply noticing them arise and noticing what happens. Do they continue? Do they get stronger? Do they get weaker? Do they disappear? Does another one come? Settled back in awareness, simply noticing whatever predominant sensations may appear.
Notice carefully any arising thought or mind state. Simply making the note of thinking or recognizing the particular emotion or mind state that may come. Seeing how they arise and pass away. Settling back into the open, easy, relaxed awareness. Feeling the body, sounds, the breath. Don't be bothered by your thoughts. Simply let them come and go. <laughs> you have any questions about your practice? Brahma-vihara meditations uh, on metta, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, which means that quality which takes delight in the happiness of others, and equanimity. Um, and we're hoping to at least briefly touch on all four of those, you know, on the Monday or Tuesday nights uh, sittings. It's interesting to, to do a little bit of each one of them, at least, because each one has uh, its own unique flavor. Metta is that feeling <clears throat> which is quite universal. That is that feeling of goodwill towards all beings. Compassion is directed particularly towards beings who are suffering. Sympathetic joy directed particularly to those beings who are enjoying happiness. And equanimity <laughs> is all pervasive, <laughs> all useful. good example of the distinction between consciousness and mindfulness you know, in that sense would be when we're lost in a thought we're not unconscious right? consciousness is there and yet when we're lost in the thought we're not mindful that the thought is present 
contrast that with the time when a thought arises, there's consciousness present, and we're also aware that the thought is present. And so there's an extra component. And that extra component we could call mindfulness. I mean, you've probably noticed that throughout the day, I mean, in a poetic sense, one could say we're unconscious, but we're actually not unconscious, although many times during the day we're not mindful. Of course, they're getting less and less. <laughs> so is mindfulness uh, an inherent condition of consciousness? It's that it's present when all of the defilements are absent? I mean, you know, we're just... Hey. Instead of plucking weeds, we're cultivating open space. I think you could look at it from both sides. One way of looking at it would be that when the defilements are not present, when the mind is undistracted through greed, hatred, or delusion, then mindfulness is present. That's why the, one of the meanings of the word, one of the translations of the word sati, which is usually translated as mindfulness, one of the meanings of that is undistracted. That's a moment of the unconditioned. Well, right. These are debates that have been raging for 2,000 years. <laughs> When there's some degree of identification, um, then that's not really mindfulness. Because mindfulness means being aware of what's arising without greed, hatred, or delusion. And identification, uh, identification is, is that factor of wrong view, which is taking things to be self, to be I. You know, and it's associated with delusion. I think rather than partial, one could say there's identification of longer or shorter duration. You know, so for example, if a, if a thought comes and from the very moment of the thought arising, there's mindfulness, there's no identification with that at all. Very often, as you've noticed, thought arises, we're not mindful just as it arises. We're kind of in it a bit, and then we become mindful. So then the experience of that is that the thought doesn't have much of a grip. It just kind of... It's not, so, it's not so heavy in the mind. And at other times, we're completely lost, we're completely carried away. You know, not knowing that we're thinking. So then the identification is very strong of long duration. That's why there was one, uh, 
one teaching from this wonderful Korean Zen master of the 11th century. Um, this is a paraphrase because I can't remember the exact quotation, but he said, uh, basically, the that thoughts themselves are not the problem. Only be concerned lest your awareness of them is tardy. Because the thought itself is just another arising appearance, like anything else, like a sensation, like a sound. The problem is they're so seductive. You know, and they kind of slip in, and so our awareness of them is often tardy, is often slow. So that's really what we're practicing. It's not a battle with thoughts. It's really to see the emptiness of thoughts, the transparency of them. And that becomes increasingly obvious as we become aware of them more and more quickly. And then they're not a problem. And the the content of the thought really becomes irrelevant from that space of awareness, which is itself a huge relief. question was about how long to stay with particularly mental states like desire or anger once one is mindful of them is, and is noting them, whether to really stay with them until they're completely gone or to recognize them, be with them for a few notes and then come back. Um, I think it can be helpful to do both. If you're staying with it, I think you need to be particularly careful that you're, st- that you're resting in awareness, that you're really abiding in mindfulness with that state, because it would be easy to get pulled back in. Just as an interesting experiment, not necessarily something you do all the time, but when a mind state arises, like desire or anger, see how many notes it takes until it's gone. You know, is it five notes? Is it 20 notes? Is it 100 notes? Just to, just to see, how long do I have to note this until it's no longer there? And it's not for the purpose, you're not noting it in order for it to go away. You're just noting it in order to be staying mindful of it. And then noticing, does it stay long, does it stay short? You really want to have this sense of exploration rather than sort of a fixed idea, it should be this way, it should be that way. You know, at other times, you note desire, you note anger, you note it a few times, you feel balanced behind it, and then you come back to the breath. Just as I mentioned, to reinforce it, if you are taking the tack of staying with it as long as it's there, be particularly mindful that you're not getting pulled into proliferating thoughts because that could be a real danger and then it would be more helpful to come back
um, which seems to happen in practice for me, that if I have a highly expansive experience, then I can count on some kind of a, you know, um, opposite. And so, but this was so like fast. I mean, I, I was feeling just on a purely physical level, very good, probably as good as I've ever felt in my life. And my body just felt great. I, I went, sat for 45 We minutes. like those pleasant feelings. <laughs> I sat for 45 minutes, and I was sitting, exhausted. I felt like I had been run over by a truck. All I did was sit. <laughs> no matter what, I didn't eat in between or anything. <laughs> I didn't breathe. <laughs> It's real easy. <laughs> it's all changing. <laughs> and it's not that it's a mistake that things change, and it's not that something goes wrong that things change. This is the nature of every single arising condition. But we... It's amazing, something that we all know. I mean, this. It's not a surprise to you. It just, it sometimes is dramatic and sometimes it's very subtle. But what this points to, and it points, I think this was kind of a laugh of recognition because we've all been through this, it really points to the very deep-rooted attachment we have to things staying pleasant, nice, easy, expansive, and how we pull back from or don't like when it's contracted or painful or unpleasant. For freedom to be true, it can't be dependent on conditions. Because if it's dependent on conditions, it's not free. The conditions are continuously changing, and as much as we would like to fix them, it's not in the nature, it's not the Dharma. And so our practice is to look again and again at the ways we're trying to hold on to things being a particular way or upset in some way when they change, to really notice that and to decondition that very strong habit of mind to a place where we're simply settled back in the awareness of whatever it is that's appearing, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, I just settle back is the example which we've used many times and it's it is just an image so don't get don't fixate on this image but it's we want to cultivate that mirror-like awareness of the mind you know where the mind the awareness is just open and we could say reflecting whatever it is that appears without any movement toward or away from And we get, we, we get glimpses of this in our practice where the mind is in that state of balance, it's open, right? it's non-reactive, but then again, we see the power of our conditioning. And we see that again and again. So even if, if you have that state, if you're in that state, will you still experience those dramatic 
Yeah, no. It, there will be many dramatic changes, first just on the level of the body. You know, even enlightened beings get old and they get sick and their body goes through all kinds of stuff. So there'll be many unpleasant, very unpleasant feelings which may arise. But as we get more and more trained or stable in this quality of open awareness, the mind is less reactive. You know, so it goes from being very expansive and pleasant to a lot of pain, maybe the body's whatever, whatever it's doing. And there's less and less reactivity in the mind to that. And that's what our practice is. It's not trying to hold on to a pleasant state. Although this is very hard to believe. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> okay, just... Um, <laughs> there are a couple of announcements and then I, I just wanted to read you something very briefly from the Satipatthana Sutta, which is really a reminder of the kind of practice uh, that we want to be doing. The reminders first, especially for the people who have recently come, uh, we like to keep the meditation hall as quiet as possible and so request that you don't come in or leave uh, other than at the beginning or end of a sitting. So don't come in in the middle or, or leave before the sitting is over. Um, if you have an interview during a scheduled sitting time, either do some walking meditation or sit in the library, which has its own hours for entering and leaving. So you should check on that. Uh, they're posted. Also, in the same vein, uh, and this is true particularly of the annex, we've gotten a few notes, be particularly careful with opening and closing doors and the bathroom doors in there because I understand that uh, it can be, the noise can be quite loud and reverberating. So be very mindful. You, know, you can actually open and close the door silently, but it takes paying attention. Okay, so this is from uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Buddha's discourse on the development of mindfulness, and it's a very powerful discourse because the Buddha said very explicitly, this is the way to liberation, this is the way to freedom. You know, and it's a very clear, direct statement. Okay, he's talking to monks in the discourse, so I'll just read it as it's written. Again, a monk, when walking, knows that he's walking. When standing, knows that he is standing. When sitting, knows that he is sitting. When lying down, knows that he is lying down. In whatever way his body is disposed, he knows that that is how it is. Again, a monk, when going forward or back, is clearly aware of what he is doing. In looking forward or back, is clearly aware of what he is doing. In bending and stretching, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In carrying his robes in bowl, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, tasting, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In passing excrement or urine, 
is clearly aware of what he is doing. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up, in speaking or in staying silent, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. That covers it. <laughs> I actually had the thought before this retreat to sort of have this read every morning. You know, just as a reminder, the, the idea in practice is to be clearly aware of what we're doing in every moment. And so you want to treat all the in-between times exactly the same way as you treat a sitting, the same level of commitment to staying mindful. It's not so much a question of speed, although slowing down helps a lot, but we could be aware of moving quickly if that's what's appropriate. Pay attention, notice, especially in times outside of the sitting and walking, whether there's that same care in the awareness when you're walking, when you're bending, when you're stretching, when you're all of these things. Is there that same level of attentiveness? That's what we're training in. And it, it very much strengthens and deepens the practice. It's like we get used to resting in awareness. Now we keep training our mind to come back to that in all the many activities through the day. And this way the practice really becomes seamless. Well, this is... This book is the collection of the long discourses of the Buddha. It's called Thus Have I Heard. Um, but it, it was the Satipatthana Sutta, the found, discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. Uh, one of the things that's so striking to me about this, I mean, here's the, here's the main teaching on the path to awakening, the path to liberation. And I'm just struck again and again by the simplicity of it. I mean, nothing, nothing that I read there was complicated. You know, it was just saying, okay, in everything you do, pay attention. Be awake, be mindful. You know, so it's not complicated, but it just takes our practice, and that's the beauty of the retreat. You know, it provides an environment for doing that. Thank you. Do you have any questions about your practice? Do you have any, me, any guidelines about um, when to do vipassana practice versus uh, metta practice versus passion practice? <laughs> Are you asking in terms of uh, when to do periods of intensive practice of each, or how to weave them all into... Uh, well, I'm, hmm. I'm not sure how to go about whether to weave them or whether to do intensive mm -hmm. when. In terms of weaving the practices together, you can do it in one of several ways. Sometimes it's helpful to begin each sitting with five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen minutes 
you know, of metta or compassion, whichever one. You might want to practice the one that's, you know, being taught during uh, the week or the two weeks, just as a way of getting familiar and deepening it. So, for example, now you could be doing the compassion practice and to begin the sittings that way. Uh, it can collect the mind, soften the mind, you know, develop some concentration, which then might make it easier to go into the vipassana. You could also choose, instead of that, just to take one sitting a day, where you do that one sitting in the Brahma-vihara, you know, in the metta, the compassion. And either way uh, would be fine. In terms of when it might be useful to do a period of intensive Brahma-vihara practice, it would be good to discuss that with whichever teacher you're working with. Because periods of that can be helpful, but the timing is also important. Other things that drive one crazy if one thinks too much about them. Uh, I don't think you actually are thinking about them. <laughs> because one, uh, and I'm not sure I remember all of them, but one is the, uh, the origin of the universe, the range of mind of the Buddha, the range of mind that's fully absorbed in jhana, practice and absorption, Things like that. <laughs> it's probably not high on your list of tapes. <laughs> I'll say just how did the world start? <laughs> Actually, I was going to ask this question, but it's driving me crazy. So, um, the other nice thing is um, one of the greatest obstacles to the continuity of our mindfulness is our obsessive fascination with craving pleasurable experiences. The reason it's driving me crazy is because I also hear almost every day enjoy the practice. So I look for the pleasure. Um, I said with Technot Han for five days, and every day he said, if you're not enjoying your practice, you're not practicing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Last year, one of, the, one of the statements that turned the hell I was going through around was that uh, somebody said, hold the intention of care. Pay exquisite extension, attention to each moment and each movement, doing it with delight, like dancing classical dance. So, you know, I was wondering about this obstacle to my mindfulness. The other thing is, you know, all the current crop or recent crop of somatic teachers say it's through pleasure that we learn more quickly and more efficiently. 
So. <laughs> the pleasure vote. <laughs> I think that uh, it's important to distinguish between pleasure and happiness. Because given the nature of a mind-body, there's no one who experiences only pleasant things. It's not in the nature of this. There are going to be painful sensations and pleasant sensations and pleasant mind states and unpleasant mind states. And we all know that. I mean, you can have every intention in the world, let me only experience pleasure. And it doesn't happen like that. There is a kind of happiness, though, and you could call it delight or you could call it pleasure in a different sense. N not the pleasure of exclusively pleasant feeling, but it's really the, the pleasure or the happiness uh, of an equanimous mind. It's that mind which can hold pleasant and unpleasant equally, you know, without grasping at one or pushing away the other. And you find that, in fact, that is a much greater pleasure. You know, than the pleasure we might get from holding on to, to pleasant things, which don't last anyway. I guess uh, one of the things I do, <clears throat> I, I look very carefully at those Buddhas in the dining hall, and they seem to be doing a walking meditation. It's very sensual. And I think, gee, that looks really pleasurable. So that's the way I started walking. Mm -hmm. And it is pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And if I don't walk looking for the pleasure, mm -hmm. it becomes drudgery, you know, bore, bore, step, step. But if I look for sway, spine, or whatever, it's very pleasurable, and I really stay mindful. Mm -hmm. I kind of do things with my breath. You know, what is the joy? Oh, it's boring, boring, boring. I think in the way you're describing it, in terms of finding the delight or the pleasure in movement or in the breath, that sounds fine. Because it's really, if I'm, if I'm hearing it right, it's really a way of opening the mind to be in your experience with care. And that is exactly what the practice is about. When you say, if you're, if you're just with the breath or the walking and you're not doing that, step, step, in, out, boring, boring. That's <laughs> true, but that's really the quality of not really being carefully in it. You know, and there's whatever kind of concept or idea or overlay you have on the practice, which is actually keeping you distant from those experiences. So in what you're describing, it feels quite skillful to me. You're softening into it. You know, and in that there's a care and an attentiveness and an enjoyment. Can you do that, that same quality, when there's unpleasant feelings coming as well? Can you enjoy them in the same way? And Yes. Right. I can't do it with emotional pain, with mental pain, because I 
Okay, so that's you seem to have you seem to have developed that quality of softness and openness in, in the breath, in the walking, in physical pain. Next step. <laughs> yeah. no, it sounds fine. You know, we ha- we have to be a little careful about the language because sometimes uh, we could use the same words to really describe very different mind states and experiences. The way you're describing it does not sound to me like getting attached or grasping at pleasant experience. It sounds like softening the mind into what you call the enjoyment or the full experience or the delight of what's arising in the moment. And that's, that's an attitude about things which can be really helpful. You know, mindfulness does not mean grimness. And sometimes people confuse that. They, they think, oh, well, if I'm really making an effort, I have to be very grim. And that's not what the practice is about. The practice is really just that full opening to what's happening. But you want to watch whether the mind is grasping at it or simply open and experiencing it. Because those are two different movements of mind. I hope you see that it's I hope you clearly see that attachment to anything that's changing is a setup for suffering. It's not the experience of what's changing, it's not open to what's changing, it's the attachment to what's changing. If we're attached to what in its nature is going to fall away, it's a setup. And that's really what the Buddha was pointing out. The attachment doesn't enhance anything. The attachment doesn't enhance the enjoyment, doesn't enhance the delight. All it is is cause suffering, both in the very contraction of the attachment and in the loss when it's, whatever it is we're attached to uh, disappears. And there is a much greater sense of delight and enjoyment and openness when we can sit back and relax into the flow of experience. One of the things Thich Nhat Hanh said, which I really appreciated a lot, is he said, practice with a half smile. And it really helps. So just can, to actually do that literally, not to have just a, a half smile. <laughs> but sometimes it is really grim and boring. There's no way around it. And I suppose there's a way of finding some status, I mean, of saying, well, it, it's grim and boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely, and that's the question is how are you holding it? How are you relating to it? Can you make a really big space in which grim and boredom are the star attractions? <laughs> the nature of awareness is not affected. The nature of awareness is not affected but by what's appearing in the same way, just as an analogy, that space is not affected by the things that appear in it. The nature of space is emptiness. And whatever appears, there are beautiful things, uglier things. The space is just there containing it all. The nature of our mind 
you can say is empty, is clear, is invisible, is unobstructed, is lucid. It's all of those qualities of awareness. It's, it's not a thing you can point to. And yet, it has the capacity to know whatever is arising. The problem is we get caught, we get identified in our reactions to what's appearing. And we like this, we don't like this. So that's where we get contracted and imprisoned. The practice is to become space-like. Right? Awareness is not space. Space doesn't know anything. But it's space-like. Grimness, great, it's a gray day. Gray days are beautiful in their own gray way. <laughs> And, you know, as we say this, it's really to point back to how we practice. Sometimes people hear this and then start judging themselves because the mind is not always perfectly in this space-like, luminous, clear awareness. <laughs> so that's not the point of the reminder. You know, it's not so that we should judge ourselves when that's not happening. It's simply a reminder to practice coming back to that. And we do get caught a lot, and if we didn't get caught, we wouldn't have to be here. And this, is, this is the practice time. In that regard, and very much in line with uh, what you were saying, uh, take care with small things. Don't be rushing around, because the beauty of the retreat and the environment and the support here is that there's nothing else to do except pay attention. That's your job. So take care with it. You know, the small things, not only the sitting and walking, the more formal periods, how you stand up, how you leave the hall, how you're walking you know, to your walking space, putting your shoes on, eating, closing doors. It's like every moment can be a moment of resting in the awareness of what it is that's arising. So do it with care and with delight, if possible. But this quality of caring interest is really key. And notice when the mind gets sloppy, you know, when the activities get sloppy, when we're not really paying attention. There's one hint in terms of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.